welcome to another episode of 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Dan DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Associate Professor of Political Science, Sam Rosenfeld. Rosenfeld's research centers around the study of partisan politics in America, and he teaches courses about American democracy, American elections, and party power, war and the shaping of American politics, and the presidency and executive leadership. Media outlets often call upon Rosenfeld's expertise, particularly as it pertains to the national political discourse and related to the two-party system. His most recent book, The Polarizers, Post-War Architects of Our Partisan Era, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Rosenfeld has appeared in national and international media, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vox, and, and many others. Rosenfeld earned his Bachelor of Arts in History at Columbia University and his Master's and PhD in History at Harvard University. Professor Rosenfeld, welcome to 13. Now it's a pleasure to be here. All right. I always like to start things off with a little bit about your area of expertise, kind of coming in uh, just to bring people up to speed. And uh, really curious about the area of political science that you focus on um, and the history of partisan politics. So how did you get interested in that subject? Well, uh, you know, I think I was just always a, a political junkie, as they say, and uh, was engaged in early uh, 2000s blogging back when that was a thing uh, in college <laughs> and uh, started a, a or uh, worked on a, a, a political magazine at, at Columbia um, I then went into journalism, political journalism in D.C., covering um, national politics and Congress uh, for a magazine called The American Prospect. Um, and from there, went on to, to grad school. And uh, as you indicated in your in your bio, I actually didn't get trained as a political scientist. I got trained as a historian. Um, but from the beginning, my kind of interest in uh, substantively speaking, in in uh, my scholarly pursuit is is sort of 20th century American politics, um, and so in my sort of historical training, I ended up producing a dissertation that became the basis for uh, uh, what turned into a book that really kind of bridges political science and history um, about the um, the origins of our contemporary ideologically defined party system. Um, and in the field that I've drifted into, political science, uh, I both kind of study parties as institutions um, in the subfield of American politics uh, in the discipline, and a subfield of that is called American political development, which sort of analyzes um, the development of American politics and American institutions over time and takes time as a kind of variable in, in, uh, in the analysis. Hmm. So how does one study political partisanship? Is it a case of looking at how voting comes down in Congress? Is it about party platforms or messaging or is it something else? Yeah. Well, this is where my weird background uh, leads me to uh, – have possibly a different answer than uh, a lot of other of my colleagues in political science. You know, I'm I'm pretty enumerate. I came out of uh, 
uh, archival historical uh, kind of methods, um, didn't get any training in statistics or formal modeling or anything like that as a, uh, as a historian. Um, and so I do approach, uh, I approach the study of American politics uh, with a mind towards um, uh, kind of excavating what it is that particularly engaged activists and political elites um, do and think they are doing and how they talk about what they're doing. And methodologically, that means going to the archives and um, seeing how, um, you know, as, I, as the book title indicates, what I think of as architects of the party system, which uh, I, I consider to be sort of engaged activists, organized social movements and interest groups um, and uh, entrepreneurial politicians, um, uh, what it is they think they're up to as they go about deciding what it is that parties should stand for and what it is that parties should do in the in the political system. I think there's a lot more agency at the level of uh, engaged activists and political elites than we sometimes think when we're sort of day by day just looking at the polling and the political horse race. This, uh, one of the uh, summaries or I guess marketing copy uh, for the polarizers reads in part, even in this most partisan and dysfunctional of eras, we can all agree on one thing. Washington is broken. Politicians take increasingly inflexible and extreme positions, leading to gridlock, partisan warfare, and the sense that our seats of government are nothing but cesspools of hypocrisy, childishness, and waste. The shocking reality, though, is that modern polarization was a deliberate project carried out by Democratic and Republican activists. So without giving away the whole book, I guess, how did we get here? Like, where, what was the birth of this partisan era? And or is it just an evolution? Has it always been there? Yeah, um, I do think that copy, it's uh, might evoke a, a kind of conspiratorial flavor that uh, that I don't I, I should hasten to say I don't endorse and the, the book doesn't argue. These were sincerely uh, these were thoughtful and sincere people on the right and left who I think had a lot of good ideas in, in pursuing political reforms. But basically the critique in the middle of the 20th century had been of American politics had been, in fact, we have these two parties and they're not polarized enough. They're not different enough. They're not um, organized around distinct policy agendas or kind of uh, worldviews. Then that means they don't offer voters meaningful choices at the ballot box. And it also means that you can't you, – voters couldn't make a, a good sense of who to hold collectively accountable for governance. So um, there was no incentives for um, uh, parties to act uh, accountably and responsibly uh, in government because it was this r much more individualized free-for-all of bipartisan ad hoc deal-making. And there were lots of conservative Democrats and a lot of liberal Republicans and – uh, just a lot of fuzzy uh, distinctions, particularly at the national level, between the two parties. And people, uh, political scientists, and also so a core of political scientists articulated a kind of scholarly and small-d democratic critique of that kind of fuzziness. Um, but it was picked up by left-wing Democrats and conservative Republicans who were frustrated with the kind of dissident ideological factions in their own parties uh, that they saw as kind of um, watering down their uh, the agendas they had for the country, um, and over the 
over the course of the second half of the 20th century, this is what the kind of book um, recounts, activists, um, in part armed with these arguments about how parties should behave, um, succeeded in in essentially um, putting a much clearer and multi-issue brand on their own party uh, and um, marginalizing the, the distant factions in each party so that by the end of the 20th century, you have a much clearer sense that there is a liberal party and a conservative party and the most liberal uh, Republican in Congress by various quantitative measures is still more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. Um, you get a kind of sorting and definition of the two parties by ideology in a way that you hadn't had before. Mm. And it, it makes me wonder, too, how you ha you have these two parties with, you know, such kind of um, a vast gap between the two where, you know, you hear people talk all the time about how the majority of Americans fall somewhere in the middle. And if that's the case, why why isn't there a third party in the middle? And and was there a con, you know concerted effort somewhere to keep that from ever happening? Yeah, uh, there's like there's two answers to that. I mean, for one, when we say that most people are in the middle, the reality is most people have a mix of issue positions. There, uh, this is. Increasingly, mo more people are becoming more consistent uh, in taking liberal or conservative positions on lots of issues. But um, it's still the case that uh, uh, what looks to be a sort of moderate middle is more that there's just lots of people with cross-pressured views. They have views on immigration that don't align with what you would expect them to have uh, when it comes to taxes or uh, you know environmental regulation, et cetera. Um, and also, most people are not particularly engaged in politics, so they don't have strong opinions on lots of issues, um, and those opinions they do have, as I say, uh, don't end up kind of aligning particularly with uh, one side or the other. Um, that's not the – I don't think that's a basis for a cohesive new third party. Uh, it's more a reflection of um, – disengagement and that the more engaged you get in politics, the more you start to fit issues right. together, in part because you're taking cues from um, uh, movements and interest groups and parties themselves. Um, the, the other way to say, though, is, I mean, it's clear there is room for different kinds of ideological bundling than the two parties have offered for the last half century. Um, but there are major institutional barriers to uh, having multiple parties, uh, having third or fourth parties emerge as a kind of um, uh, stable part of uh, the American political system. Um, this is a law of political science known as Duverger's law, which is named after a French political scientist, Maurice Duverger, uh, who made the argument that uh, if you have an electoral system that is um, – Sing, that has single-member districts uh, in your legislature, so you're only voting for one person rather than uh, allocating votes proportionally. Uh, and if you elect those individual members by a plurality vote, whoever gets the most votes wins, um, that will produce, over time, stable two-party systems, uh, basically because everyone's going to be behaving strategically because they don't want to spoil their vote, mm -hmm. um, pr produce a kind of perverse outcome where they're at least 
preferred uh, option wins because the alternatives to those are splitting their votes among one another. So you get eventually a kind of, and, and candidates are thinking the same thing. So you get eventually a kind of um, bifurcation, a stability around two sides. You're voting, and you're basically voting against the person you don't want. To. <laughs> and, that, and, and it just, that is powerful. That is rational stuff that um, prevents uh, more than two parties from kind of gaining a foothold and being a kind of part of a stable equilibrium. Whereas in most other democracies, which are parliamentary uh, uh, proportional representation systems, the districts are, you have multi-member districts, or sometimes like in Israel, they don't have any districts at all. It's all national at-large elections. And you don't split votes. Whatever Parties run, and whatever share of the vote you get, you get that uh, share of seats in parliament. Mm. So nobody needs to be strategic about uh, their vote. And that, that is what leads to stable equilibrium around more than two parties. And it would just take major changes to get um, to get there in the United States. And it makes it's especially hard because the president, we, we are a presidential system. Um, you can't proportionally, mm. you can't have a Frankenstein monster as, as president. It's only one person. <laughs> so you can't allocate preferences proportionally. So there's always a kind of anchor around um, a, a, a kind of two-party uh, orientation uh, in presidential systems. Was that the basis that why we didn't go to that proportional representation because of the presidency? Uh, well, the basic, I mean, in the late 18th century, we didn't even expect to uh, have presidents be elected by people at all. It was, the Electoral College was originally intended as genuinely being a kind of autonomous deliberative body where even the electors most of the time weren't chosen by people. They were chosen by state legislatures and they decide who would be president. It's more the multi-member districts and proportional representation just literally hadn't been invented yet ah. as options. Um, and that's why it's in Great Britain and the United States and, and Anglophone countries um, uh, where you still get a lot of what they call first past the post plurality uh, electoral systems, even though I think lots of analysts would say it's um, it's been improved upon subsequently, but it's we are the oldest democracies, and so we still hold on to these old systems. Great Britain almost changed a couple, like about a decade ago, they had a referendum to switch to uh, PR, but they lost. Hmm. When folks talk about politics, it's inevitable that like hyperbole will enter the conversation. People get, you know, it's always the worst or the best or the political divide has never been as bad before. Um, is that true right now? What you see, is the political di divide worse than ever or is this a, a shade of things that have been far worse in the past? Yeah, I, 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 that's a great question. I, what I would say is people and political elites have been bitterly divided far apart from one another with clashing values and worldviews in plenty of other times in American history. In that sense, we are not more genuinely um, uh, polarized from each other uh, as plenty of other uh, times in American history, including the period I point to as this as the most kind of bipartisan uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And if you could, if you go back and see what uh, people like Joe McCarthy and uh, uh, other allies in the kind of red scare of the late 40s and early 50s are saying about their colleagues uh, in in the Senate and in the House and 
in government and in American society. Um, it's extraordinary, uh, the kind of vitriol, um, uh, the extremism of what they're saying. Um, uh, and that's just to take an example from a period that we think of and you could see in, in statistics are it was uh, unusually unpolarized in terms of the parties. But that's the point. I think what's distinct about this period uh, and worth considering as something – if not completely novel, uh, something that doesn't actually recur all the time in American politics, is that the polarizations of people's views and identities and um, uh, uh, outlook on issues uh, is so perfectly aligned with partisan affiliations. At other periods, including uh, the era of the Red Scare is a perfect example, um, there was liberals and conservatives. There were socialists in uh, Congress as well as, you know, uh, uh, an entire region of um, racist white supremacists. Um, uh, but their party, those views didn't align uh, systematically with one party or the other. Um, and so a lot of the kind of partisan teamsmanship and strategies uh, involved in organizing um, legislative uh, coalitions, et cetera, kind of cross-cut some of the disagreements uh, in substance and uh, uh, geographical uh, and uh, kind of group identities, um, uh, there was cross-cutting alignments. Uh, when you get an alignment that becomes much more, uh, an alignment of identity and viewpoints with political party, uh, you get a much more intense division that kind of ramifies across political institutions. Um, and, you know, we saw that in the 1790s, arguably. Um, we saw that in the 1850s. Um, and 1790s, it's, it's, it's a great success story of, a, of an early democracy kind of weathering intense political polarization and actually uh, experiencing through an election a kind of change of regime that was peaceful with Jefferson winning in 1800. Uh, uh, in the 1850s, it led to an um, absolutely gigantic catastrophic civil war that killed 600,000 people. And um, So the, the precedents aren't, aren't uh, it's a mixed bag. I'm not um, feeling better. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that's what I would say. The stakes of people's disagreements have been, I would say, in histor by historical standards, much higher and some of the social and polarization in society and among people's beliefs and, and values has been um, much more intense uh, in other periods than now. But the alignment of the divisions we have with uh, uh, political parties uh, is making for some pretty novel strains uh, in our political system right now. Hmm. You wrote an essay that was published in the pages of the Washington Post on January 6th this year that had the headline, Democracy is on the Brink of Disaster. For voters, it's politics as usual. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. Um, this was, uh, you know, this was a, a, a piece that, as all important insights uh, are these days, it started as a tweet um, <laughs> that I wrote after... The uh, elections last November in Virginia and New Jersey for governor um, and a couple other elections, kind of off-year elections. 
in which Democrats did really badly um, and uh, narrowly lost in uh, Virginia, narrowly won in New Jersey, but uh, they rep- the kind of Republican share of the vote relative to the year before in the presidential election was a shift of 12 and 13 points in the Republicans' direction because these are both pretty blue states at this point, especially New Jersey. Um, and it was just a reminder, the party who has the presidency, it is normal for them to do badly between presidential elections, uh, in off-year elections and in uh, midterm elections. That's like the normal run of things. And it's somewhat uh, underexplained, I think, exactly why this happens. But basically, you get differential turnout. The opposition gets much more mobilized to turn out. The uh, incumbent party feels mainly frustration that, like, all the things they wanted to accomplish, or it's hard for them to get accomplished. <laughs> or or, the, or they're just, like, not fired up anymore because they're guys in the White House and they're going to pay attention to other stuff. So there's so the opposition turns out more, and there's this phenomenon called thermostatic public opinion where um, public preferences tend to kind of go in the opposite direction of the coalition that is in power um, as, a, as a correction maybe, that they see people are now, okay, we're going to spend a lot of money and raise taxes, and so they start saying, eh, let's not raise taxes too much, let's not spend too much money. Um, and so you saw like, you know, uh, support for immigration went up in the United States while Donald Trump was president because there, there was a kind of reaction uh, in public opinion. Anyway, and that seems to help explain uh, the, the off-year and midterm punishment for incumbent parties as well. Normal stuff. It's all normal politics. Um, and that means I think Democrats, uh, unless something extraordinary happens, are going to have a really bad uh, election in November as the incumbent party. And it's just normal, normal, normal. All the behavior by voters are kind of predictable by boring quantitative political science measures <laughs> about how these things happen. At the same time that, yeah, I think there's certainly a perception among a lot of people that we're in unusually um, – we have been for a while in unusually bitter and acrimonious um, uh, political uh, days. Um, and that more recently, there's just uh, system level threats to the kind of stability of uh, the whole process that uh, January 6th certainly <laughs> uh, raised the issue of. Um, more broadly, Donald Trump's um, emergence as a political figure, then his presidency, and then especially his um, uh, just f- flagrant and utterly unsubstantiated claims about um, uh, uh, the election being stolen from him in, in 2020 that a lot of his supporters believe, um, that that's raising a lot of fundamental questions about the kind of the stability and functioning of the political system. And so that stuff is happening, but it's not shaking up anybody's voting inclinations at all. I mean, most importantly, Trump's loss does not seem to have made anything, uh, made Republicans so far less Republican. I mean, you know, people who, uh, nobody's turned a, uh, 
turned against Trump or turned against the Republican Party as a result of Trump. Um, uh, one, both things are happening simultaneously, and they don't seem to be speaking to one another. That was the kind of observation I was playing around with in this column. Hmm. So is there a hope for more unity in Congress in the near future? If so, are there any senators or representatives you see as being primary actors in trying to bring people together to pass legislation that both parties can agree upon? No. I don't... <laughs> Next question. Uh, well, <laughs> here's what I say. The other thing that is a major theme of my uh, work and that uh, even in these these columns and stuff I'm writing is that um, the American political system is particularly ill-suited in its uh, kind of current uh, rules and procedures uh, to accommodate more disciplined, ideologically sorted parties. We have parties that are behaving like they're in a parliamentary system where you have much more strict party discipline and there's uh, more ideological cohesiveness to each individual party. Um, but we have this political system where it's very hard to get anything done because by design, it's, it's, there's separated powers. You have to have concurrent majorities in, in the House and the Senate, and then you have to have the president sign off on it, and then you have to have the judiciary not uh, overturn it. All these checks and balances, you know, the whole, the whole Madisonian deal. It makes it very hard to get anything done unless you can facilitate some um, um, major bipartisan kind of compromises uh, and deals to pass. And that's just... That is harder and harder to do, be, uh, genuinely because the two parties disagree with one another. Again, again, it's not it's not a it's not fake, um, uh, but it just means as we see Joe Biden temperamentally. This is how he got the nomination in the first place. Um, relative to other Democrats, he's been around forever. He was uh, he came of age in a much less polarized era. Uh, he thinks of himself as someone who, who can reach across the aisle and make deals. But now, uh, given the circumstances that he's entering into as, as president late in his life, um, he knows perfectly well how little chance there is of making big bipartisan deals. So what he's attempted to do, to do instead is put as much of his agenda into these big packages that uh, – can go through this procedure called reconciliation that avoids a, a filibuster in the Senate and try and ram it through on a 50-50. I mean, Democrats have a 50-seat majority in uh, the Senate. It's only a majority because they have the vice presidency. Um, but it's the narrowest possible majorities. But he knows that that's the only way to get any of this done because uh, there's no chance of Republicans... Uh, coming to the table and giving him a partial victory uh, with various other things that are on uh, his agenda. I do think that's just a structural reality of the system right now. And, you know, Joe Manchin would like to say, let's make more deals. And you could arguably say there are people in the Senate, Joe Manchin, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, um, uh, uh, the Alaska... Um, Senator from Alaska, I'm blanking on her name. I'm going to know it. 
Uh, Lisa Murkowski. Lisa Murkowski, thank you very much. Um, there is a center that under different circumstances could act as kind of pivotal players uh, in the system. Um, but there's just, uh, there does not seem to be any particular interest in making that happen in a major way. Um, and what that means is if you take as a reality, the parties are quite divided right now. Um, you can either wish that away and get more people to behave like Joe Manchin, um, or you can try and change the rules to accommodate the ability of temporary majorities to do some stuff uh, on a more partisan basis. And that's why you get the argument now from more and more Democrats uh, that the 60-vote threshold to break a filibuster in the Senate is just untenable under these circumstances. It just gives the minority party veto over um, uh, passing legislation. No other legislature in the world does that. Um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a insurmountable kind of uh, additional veto and already, already veto-laden checks and balance system. Um, and that if we're gonna have polarized disciplined parties, let's at least make the rules accommodate the ability to get some stuff done um, when either party is in power. It could very well be two years from now or three years from now, Republicans in power. Um, and so I do think there's some attention turning towards getting rid of some of the features of the system that make it so hard to accomplish things. Um, but to the extent that that happens, to be clear, that's going to accommodate polarization. It's not going to roll it back. It's going to allow majorities to actually pass legislation, but it's not going to bring everybody together and uh, uh, convince them that they don't actually disagree about things that they do, in fact, disagree about. It's funny that we, we didn't plan this, but my next question was about the filibuster. So it was really awesome. Um, with all the discussion in Washington about changing the filibuster, um, I think a lot of folks might not even understand how it works. Like, has it always been there? When did it start? How did, how did it get to be like this? Like you said, no other uh, functioning... Uh, government system has this in place except for ours. So what's the history there and how will changing it um, make it better or worse? Okay, to make a very long story short, yes. it's not in the Constitution. There's no evidence anyone, any of the founders expected the internal rules of the Senate to operate by anything besides majority rule. Um, it emerged by accident. Uh, I think, I believe Aaron Burr uh, that very complex, Sir. alienated founding father. <laughs> um, he he wrote, he was revising the internal rules to the Senate in the early 19th century and apparently just by mistake, just omitted any language about how to uh, cut off debate and proceed to a vote on a question. Really? So it just was uh, unintended, just an omission in the rules that over the course of the 19th century, uh, kind of sharp-eyed uh, senators noticed and every once in a while would exploit by talking uh, and controlling the floor uh, indefinitely until um, people would just say, okay, fine, forget it. We'll move on to something else. And it, it was a way of, of blocking um, some kind of uh, bill from proceeding that you really didn't want to uh, pass. But over the course of the 19th century and even into the 20th century, 
the norm was not, oh, here's this thing. At any point, a minority or the minority party can exploit it to the hilt. So that just means uh, you have to have consensus to pass anything. It was... Um, it was in the early 20th century, they finally introduced a reform to at least formalize how you could uh, surmount a filibuster and, and invoke cloture is the word for um, uh, breaking the filibuster, cutting off debate and pr proceeding to a vote on something. And at first it was in the uh, 19-teens, in the Wilson era, uh, they passed a, a new rule saying it would have to be two-thirds of the chamber to uh, vote cloture. Eventually, that gets reformed in the 1970s to three-fifths, 60 votes, and that's that's the number we have today. Um, but even once you get that rule in place, like, okay, take 60 votes to break a filibuster, for most of the 20th century, even on big deal legislation where lots of people disagreed, they still, the norm was not that you would filibuster everything if you opposed it. Um, a good example is uh, in uh, 1965 when Medicare passes. Most Republicans opposed Medicare, and, and some uh, conservative uh, Democrats did as well. It was a major kind of ideological fight, and it was a big expansion of social insurance in the U.S. Um, but you, you can look at the uh, kind of legislative, uh, uh, the archives of legislative strategists in the Johnson White House reporting to Johnson what's going on, and they end up saying, okay, well, we've got like 55 uh, votes lined up for uh, the bill, so uh, we're good to go. They didn't think, oh, but the opponents are going to filibuster it, and they didn't filibuster it. It passed on a, uh, on a majority vote that was less than the threshold of a, what a filibuster would need. What you had in the 20th century was the norm was, well, look, Certain subjects around which a kind of concentrated geographic uh, or other kind of uh, group really feels intensely, they might um, exploit this uh, uh, rule and block something. And mainly that meant Southern Democrats used the filibuster uh, in a minority position to block civil rights bills from really from the 1920s, uh, anti-lynching bills from the 1920s uh, on through a succession of attempted civil rights uh, uh, legislation through the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Um, and that's what it was used for the most. Um, it's not until the later 20th century when the parties start to ideologically sort in a much uh, more thoroughgoing fashion that the minority party is becoming more and more cohesively in agreement with one another and in systematic disagreement with the other party, once that starts happening, you start to get very compelling arguments from uh, people in the minority saying, well, we have the ability to stop the majority party from passing this stuff we think is bad for the country. Why aren't we using that ability? Like, it would benefit the country to prevent some bad stuff from happening. And we're not doing it because of these fuzzy norms about how things happen in the Senate. And, and that argument became more and more persuasive on, for both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and so starting in the especially in the 90s and then certainly by the 21st century, you start to see uh, uh, filibusters much more systematically mounted uh, all the time, basically by rote. Um, there's a technical change that happened in the 70s that made it easier to do it without having to actually be on the floor giving speeches, too. 
Um, so it becomes easier for them to do, and they start doing it all the time. Who agreed to that? How, how did that happen? Well, the thought was, look, it's really destabilizing <laughs> to have these filibusters stop the Senate from being able to do anything. So they introduced a concept of like two-track legislating where uh, you could keep doing other stuff while the minority blocked the thing it wanted to block or the, the filibusters did. And that would seem to make things, uh, make the whole thing be able to run more smoothly. But what it ended up doing once the minority was inclined to do it, to filibuster all the time, it just lowered the costs of actually having to mount the fill. You just had to say, we're, we're not, we're still debating this issue so we can't invoke it. Um, so it only encouraged a much more systematic approach to filibustering everything uh, if you're in the, in the minority. Um, so it's, it was polarization that made the filibuster and the 60-vote uh, supermajority requirement to pass legislation uh, a much more routine accepted thing, or not accepted, but uh, a routine practice in the United States. Um, and to get to where we are now, it's polarization that has then made the majority party, both Republicans and Democrats, at different points, more and more intolerant of this crazy feature that just makes it really hard to pass any kind of agenda. Um, and so you start getting first a move uh, uh, that happens centered around uh, judicial nominations. You get uh, the exercise of what's called the nuclear option to get rid of this filibuster, uh, the ability to filibuster uh, votes on executive and judicial nominations. Uh, and that happens uh, eventually. It was going back and forth, but eventually the Senate Democrats did that uh, in 2013 uh, to stop Mitch McConnell and Republicans from filibustering all these judicial nominations uh, during the Obama years. Uh, Republicans then r responded in turn by uh, getting rid of that for Supreme Court nominations as well in 2017. Um, and so now presidents can appoint people to the bench and appoint people to their own administration uh, on a simple party line vote. And then there's this other procedure called budget reconciliation that is not governed by um, normal rules of debate and um, cloture requirements, et cetera. Uh, again, that was kind of excluded from all that for other reasons back in the 70s when it was first invented. Um, but that's become the vehicle by which um, administrations are putting more and more of their domestic agenda into reconciliation packages uh, uh, to circumvent uh, filibusters from the uh, uh, minority. And Biden took that approach and like supercharged it. I mean, he put everything he possibly could into basically two gigantic reconciliation packages. Um, the thing about reconciliation is it has to have some direct impact on uh, revenue, on, on uh, taxing and spending. And that means things like immigration policy, um, voting rights and election reform, those are deemed by the Senate parliamentarian as not uh, falling under uh, the rules for reconciliation. So that's why it was such a big deal this week that, um, uh, you know, Manchin and Cinema killed the voting reform package because they don't want to get rid of uh, the filibuster on non-reconciliation uh, legislation, and you couldn't pass that stuff through reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, 
Is that so, a simple uh, majority vote for reconciliation? Yes, exactly. Okay. It's just a simple majority vote, and that's that's how the you know that's how um, uh, the tax pass package under uh, the big tax corporate tax cuts under Trump was passed was through reconciliation. Um, big elements of Obamacare ended up passing through reconciliation for the same reason, uh, and uh, the infrastructure bill that passed was through reconciliation and whatever Build Back Better scraps Joe Manchin deems um, worthy of passing eventually, if it ever does happen, that'll happen through reconciliation as well. Because there's no no Republicans are going to vote for any of it. <laughs> so, What filibuster reforms are they looking to do? Are they looking to do away with it completely? Or Well, under debate was, I mean, it, it all becomes so, it's like a, epistemological question uh, you know at any point at any moment a majority in the senate a simple majority can just do what it wants um and we've gotten to 48 out of 50 democrats wanting to get rid of the filibuster to vote on this voting reform package i believe the proposal there was just to suspend the closure uh requirements for this one bill interesting um but if you start doing that all the time it's like, what is the filibuster if you're just always getting rid of the filibuster for whatever bill you really want to pass? Um, and that's, you know, Cinema and Manchin who think there's, who argue that there's something valuable about the filibuster. That was what they're objecting to, this idea that if you start picking and choosing what to do, uh, you're down a slippery slope. Um, but others, I think plenty of Democrats at this point are on board just saying, get rid of the filibuster, hmm. you know, and uh, let majorities govern when they can govern. And um, uh, you know, let the voters decide what they think about the bills that get passed, uh, you know, in the next, in the next election. You've made it to question 13. <laughs> uh, question 13 is usually a little fun. Okay. Little so, I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of your interaction on Twitter and I do follow you and you, you have about 5,000 or so followers. You're pretty popular on there. And I do wonder, um, your posts are generally typical, uh, kind of a mixture of uh, political hot takes, humorous commentary. I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> and we all know that politics uh, often brings out the best in people. So I, I do wonder what your worst or weirdest interaction on Twitter has been in uh, your communications with the general public there. Oh, man. That's a good question. I do – I feel like I got the kind of – my instincts to be nasty on the internet out of my system in my 20s blogging for and there really was there was a moment where i i wrote something really snarky about uh an editorial in the new republic i remember that was unsigned um, but i thought i just i i was just being a jerk about it and um and I got this is back when I was a journalist at the American Prospect, and I got an email from the uh, uh, revealing who wrote the unsigned uh, editorial, and it was this this guy uh, Don Cohn, who's a great uh, liberal journalist. And he wrote, "It's just like you know, look, I'll admit that wasn't my best column. My <laughs> kids were running around my feet when I wrote it and stuff. I think it was really unfair." And he was so right. I was like, "Why? <laughs> why was I a jerk to this guy?" We ended up having lunch at some point, and it did. It made me think. It's like there's. There is so much incentive to even back in this is this is all blogging, not Twitter, but um, there is you get a lot of you can get a lot of instant 
feedback being a jerk um, uh, on the internet, but uh, you, you can very easily regret it. And ever since, I've been conscious of um, not doing that. I'll, I'll say lots of stupid jokes um, uh, and offer a lot of kind of low-value <laughs> stuff on Twitter. Um, but to the extent I'm engaging... Um, there's just no real upside substantively uh, in it or for my own mental state to just like uh, throwing bombs and throwing elbows. So I don't, I honestly can't remember, uh, I can't think of a Twitter exchange that I've had that's, um, that's been really unpleasant. It's these newspaper columns that all of a sudden you'll get in your inbox some real, uh, some real juicy stuff, or they they still have comment threads uh, at the at the bottom of the article at at, at the Washington Post. Um, and and for me, it's just like a throwback because I it's it's been so long since I've had people call me names on on Twitter and stuff because I try and I, I try and be a nice guy on there. <laughs> well, Professor Rosenfeld, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions about today's episode or if you want to hear anything in particular on a future episode of 13, feel free to send us a note at 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate Sophomore and Media Relations Intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.